authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for another opportunity, another uh, just privilege to gather together in the middle of the week. Lord, I pray that even this time is a respite from other cares and concerns and the work day. We thank you for such a beautiful middle of the week. Lord, just these uh, even beautiful days like this are a reminder, just a, a little bit of a glimpse of what heaven will be like, the glory of just perfection and paradise uh, where we look forward, as we just sang earlier, we'll fly away at some point. But until then, Lord, as this passage tells us, you have us needing your grace to walk through this world, this fallen world, this uh, very sinful place, Lord, and yet you have promised to give us the grace to rightly reflect you, to be a light in a dark place. And so, Lord, we pray that even tonight you would just feed us, nourish us, comfort, uh, Lord, whatever is needed, you know each heart here. We thank you for this time, and Lord, just bless it, anoint it, may you be glorified, and may we be strengthened in our love for you and our walk in the Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, chapter 1, you know, you're going back to the beginning, because it's, it's, it's a very short epistle. We've, we've talked about this as a pastoral epistle, as First, Second Timothy were as well. But chapter 1 was primarily related to faithful leadership, you know, him just kind of opening up that said there has to be elders and and, and men that are leading faithfully according to the teachings of Christ. And so faithful leadership, sound doctrine, Christ-like conduct uh, within the church, but especially you know, in the example of leaders. Uh, and then discipleship and growth within the church. All these things uh, are featured in chapter 1. And as we closed... Uh, and, and, and that continues on in chapter 2 where you, you have uh, the encouragement of women teaching women, men teaching men, mature believers teaching younger believers. And so that, again, the discipleship and growth continues into the second chapter. And as we close last week in verses 11 through 15, uh, the all-importance of grace in maturing us as believers, so no matter how long you've been saved or how long any of us have been saved, we still need a lot of grace to mature. And we still have maturing to do, even if we're already, quote-unquote, mature. And how important grace is in believers growing in the Lord, but also how important grace is in helping us fulfill the works that we've been called to. So before you were even born... God had a set of works set aside for you and each person that comes into the family of God. There's specific works set for each individual that someone else won't do. It's for them. And as we open chapter 3, Paul continues to focus on grace as pivotal to us living in lights in a very dark and fallen world. Now, remember, Paul's writing this at the time of the Roman Empire. I mean, we don't see people being crucified 
today, right? Not in our country. Uh, people will use that as some kind of cliche or something like that, but not literally. Uh, not to mention all the other uh, forms of debauchery that were happening in the Roman Empire and you know, uh, the Colosseums and the circus and all the things and, and just the gluttony and all the uh, drunkenness, you name it. But Paul's saying you're going to need grace. And, of course, this letter is written to Crete, and he already talked about the drunkenness that was going on there in chapter 2, that that was commonplace. And we're going to need grace in a fallen world, but also to not forget the greatness of the grace that has saved us. You know, we can take for granted grace. We can take for granted salvation. That's one of the big problems in the church today. Many people, uh, you know, kind of put salvation on the level of, you know, finding a really good deal at the store. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that's why there's very few people that are on fire for the Lord. I mean, percentage-wise, most of the church is very lukewarm all across the country because people will kind of put salvation somewhere in the maybe equal to a really good meal. But actually, if you see on social media, it's, it's way less. Salvation is way less. You tell people got saved, you get like a couple people like... Tell people, hey, look at the picture of my new cat. That's amazing. Uh, but heaven's not rejoicing about your new cat. But it is about a new believer. I'm not against cats or anything like that. We had two. And when they finally came to the end of the line, we have not had pets since. And we're good with that. When I hear people say, I can't find anyone for the, take the dog for vacation. I'm like, not, not our problem. Huh? You know, someone messed up the carpet. Not our problem. You know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's not that we don't like pets. It's just that pets and us just schedule-wise just don't work out. But anyway, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about tonight. But uh, if you're taking notes tonight, reminders of grace as we uh, jump in here. And we're going to look at a couple of things tonight, uh, actually. Uh, four of them tonight, just briefly, taking notes. First one we want to look at is, uh, starting in verse 3, the first word you see is remind, right? Remind them. Now, of course, this is Paul speaking to Titus. Titus is a pastor. Paul's giving Titus pastoral guidance. Uh, one of the things that, you know, probably... Um, it's probably somewhat difficult for all pastors is that your entire lifetime, if you're going to teach, I've, I've, I've talked to pastors and pastor in 40 years, um, it's not any different from parenting in this respect. Reminding is constant. Did you know that? Actually, when we get to verse 8, we'll, we'll get back to that word too. But he starts here, remind them, even though they might know this already and probably do know this already, Paul's like, you're going to have to remind them that these are the important things to keep in mind. And the first thing we want to look at tonight is remind, reminded of our walk. Or you could also say witness, either one would work. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now, you'll, you can go out and meet a lot of people that will not fit this category. They're, they'll be rude to you. If there's nothing in it for them, they couldn't care less about you. You'll have people that would cuss you out. You have people that, you know, have road rage, all these kind of things. You, you, you can look at this and say, this is not a description of man in his natural state. Man in his natural state is very much about self. It's not about humility. It's about pride. It's not about being peaceable. It's about my way or the highway. But if we've come to Christ and into salvation, we now represent Jesus everywhere we go. I mean, if we're going to name his name, we are going to be representing him everywhere we go. As the scriptures, we're told in the scriptures, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors. Now, we don't send ambassadors from a governmental standpoint with, and say, hey, you can go to Switzerland, China, wherever you're going to be. Just do anything you want. Don't worry about anything. I remember when I was still in the business world, the company I worked for, they said, all right, if you go out and get drunk, make sure you're wearing a, not a logoed shirt. That wasn't the greatest moral advice. 
That was, that's the world level. All right. You know you're going to do it, but make sure you're not wearing the logo. How about just don't do it? That would be better. But we've been given a, given a command from Christ to share the gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're, we're told to open our mouth and share the gospel with people, invite them to Christ, invite them to church as a witness, but also to live our daily lives as a living witness, just people observe. Now, you are going to have to speak to people sometimes about the Lord, but also people will watch you. You are a living book for good or for bad. And just think if every American believer, um, you know, really walked in a way that reflected Jesus. What would be the impact? On the other hand, think about if an American believer shared, let's say an American believer now, all of a sudden, they got fired up from the Sunday message, and it's Monday, and they're still fired up, and they share the gospel at lunch with a coworker, an unsaved individual, and that unsaved individual said, hey, I'll think about it. I'll, I'll give it some thought. And then they watch the supposed believer that was still fired up from Sunday, and they, and they see them, and then, of course, the next several days, gossip, lose their temper, and curse out another coworker, say hateful things about other employees. They're prideful and arrogant. Then imagine this same supposed believer a few weeks later said, Hey, have you given some more thought to what I shared to you about Jesus, what he's done for me? Not going to go over real well, is it? I'm not even making this, well, I'm making this specific scenario up. But I have seen this very thing happen many times with people that were, oh, yeah, I go to this so church, and, and I've had even people, and I, when I was still in the business world, would say, no, no, because of that person. They'll, just, they'll point literally in the office, because that person over there and that person over there, I'd never go to church. If that's what Christianity is, I don't want it anyway. You know, so we're, ha we're told to have a walk that can be observed, that matches what we're saying. Amen? That our walk and ma ma matches the bumper sticker on the car, if you will. Not going to go over well if we say one thing but live another. No, our grace received isn't just some kind of fire insurance to go back out and live any way we want to. It changes us. The grace of God as we saw last week, it trains us. It trains us. We put on spiritual muscle and shed spiritual fat and things that used to be part of it that have to be, God wants to get out of our life. We're being conformed in the character of Christ. Look at this profile of a public witness in ancient Rome's hedonist society made up of some pretty vile leaders, by the way at the top of the government, and other levels throughout the government. You can go down, you know, Paul ran into some of them in other, other cities that he had to deal with. It says to be subject to rulers and authorities. I mean, if you can be subject to the Roman Empire, you can pretty much be subject to our leaders, no matter what you think of them. And, and uh, I have had issues with quite a few of our, it's from, from what they stand for, what their agendas are in our own nation, and yet we're still called to be obedient to the laws. That if there's a now, even the apostles said we ought to obey God rather than man. If we're asked to start to do something that is against the law of God, that that's where the line gets drawn, right? There is a line drawn there. But as long as we're not asked to be sinning, if it's more of just humbling ourselves and showing proper respect. We're to obedient, be obedient and respectful. There's people that hate all police officers now. It's horrible. Someday they'll answer to God for that. You know, really, someday, if you die unsaved, you'll answer to God and say, what? You know, God say, I, I gave authority. You know, the Bible says that God raises and brings kings up and brings kings down, and all authorities are given authority because of him. And so we have to come to the place and say, all right, if God has allowed this person to be in a place of authority, I need to be respectful. 
doesn't mean that there's not corrupt people in police. There are. Doesn't mean there's not some that are racist. Doesn't mean that there aren't some that are real, you know, dishonest. All of that's true, and, and, and politicians as well, and government leaders. But a lot of times, people now hate the role, regardless of who it is. Have you noticed that? People and, and this attitude, uh, Paul said, you know, it's it's not new because it was in people a couple thousand years ago, just to be. You know, just pushing back. Don't tell me what to do. Believers are called to be good citizens. Doesn't mean we can't voice our concerns. And we live in a free society where we can voice our concerns. But we need to do it in such a way that still brings honor and glory to Jesus. Would you agree with that? And there's a lot of bad ways to do it. And there's some good... You know, again, sometimes you can do it right and people will still make something of it because, again, we still live in a sinful world where people are always trying to... Remember how many times they tried to trap Jesus in his words? He was always saying the right thing. And they were always trying to trap him in his words. So that will happen too. But, but God's going to judge on the character of our hearts. And as long as we did it correctly, God will say, look, I'll take care of all that. But if you're going to say, no, I'm going to be rebellious bombastic, I, you know, I'm going to tell everybody, I'm going to put them all in their place. Paul's saying you can't be that way. Respect and courtesy. You know, um, given that Jesus had unlimited power, a lot of people wanted Jesus to put every ruler in their place. And he could have, couldn't he? And yet he didn't. Many would have preferred to use his power against the evil rulers of his day. But he didn't use his power against the evil rulers of his day. He came to change individual hearts one by one. And by the way, when you and I get on a soapbox about things, uh, instead of rightly representing Christ, you don't win anybody over. Except the people that are already on that team. So it just doesn't help. It doesn't help anything. When I watch America today, the infighting, I'm like, have you seen a single person won over by the other side of anything? Not one. I mean, it's like, it's got to be 0%. There's so much disrespect of authority today, and, and it's getting worse. At, you know, more and more uh, moving downstream, younger, younger people. But we're called to be peaceable, not speaking evil, gentle. A tongue that doesn't slander. Uh, one of the things about social media today um, is it actually, you know, I have a Twitter account, uh, and even more than Facebook, Twitter's interesting. Uh, Twitter has, you know, people will send out a tweet and you got, you know, tons of comments, lots of comments. This, just my anecdotal view of it, about 80% of all comments, regardless of the topic, it can be something funny. It can be something tragic. It seems to me that as I read comments, the majority of all comments on Twitter, which is this massive platform now worldwide, are either snarky, angry, in your face, just vile, all kind, but everything from, and then every now and then, percentage-wise, there's people that just say something nice, like, that's awesome, or... I love this. You know, again, it, it, you know, it's people are becoming more and more jaded and cynical, and the digital age ha has people have this feeling of anonymity behind a screen of just kind of. But what's really it's what the heart is is coming out. It's actually a a, a place that is kind of like turning on a spigot. So out of these social platforms, it is allowing people to kind of finally get out. Jesus said what's on the inside is what's defiling a man, and it's coming out. And so a lot of people are finding, I can do on a keyboard what I've really wanted to say all day to everyone, and this is my place to say it. And one day, God says we're going to give an account for every single word. Every word. Even in this room, all of us are going to... Every single word, the spoken words, the thought words, and the typed text written words, all of them. You think that, uh, you think that 
the data warehouses are keeping track of everything. God has a data warehouse. It's keeping every single record, all of it. But these things are exposing the human heart. And so Paul is saying, hey, when you're walking through this world, you can't walk that way. Moving on, verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Sounds like a great place to live, huh? That's a, quite a list. Taking notes, reminded of our past. When we see the lust and the pride and the anger and the spite and the serving of pleasures that are so commonplace in society today, and it's not new, but again, uh, we, we have uh, more ways to kind of promote it and uh, expand it, you know. Any, any of you ever been to Las Vegas? Um, I, I went there once on a, on a work trip, and my wife uh, actually flew out with me, and, and she got sick there and got to go to an emergency room. And uh, We didn't really enjoy Vegas at all. I was there for totally it was a business thing, and, but just uh, it's called Sin City for a reason. I mean, it really is. It was built by the mafia. That ought to tell you, um, that, that, that ought to tell you something about what Satan's plans for this place were. And today, I mean, you name it, it it's happening there. Drug use and uh, all kinds of sexual sin and all, you know, you just name it. Drunkenness and people addicted to gambling and just all, the whole city it, it is to feed the flesh. And, it's, and they don't even mind calling it sin city. They even have commercials that call it that. They call it that. I mean, it would be one thing I say to the Christian, stop calling it sin city. You're calling it sin city. Matter of fact, sometime, next time someone gets really offended, you use the word sin, say, well, I'll stop talking about it when Vegas stops calling themselves Sin City. How about that? Because it's, it's a great place to... By the way, we've got Calvary chapels in Vegas, and people are getting saved there. Our, one of our brothers here, Xavier Joseph, you know, he got, he got saved there. And so, you know, God's doing a work there, but it's, it's one of those examples. And what, one of the things that strikes me about Vegas is when you go there, you've got Rome, Egypt... New, yeah, well, New York's there. Sorry, New Yorkers. But anyway, you got all these different things. And it's like, it's like a pantheon built to the pagan empires of the world's history. It's almost like Satan says, this is my museum, and everything goes here. But the reason why it, it's so successful and it brings in billions of dollars every year is because it appeals to the flesh. It appeals to the nature that we have. And so when you see all these things, um, you know, once you get saved, you might have used to be there. Now you've, they're anywhere in your life. Now you're saved. You're walking with the Lord, especially the longer you walk. These things go from anywhere from aggravating to irritating to even repulsive. The longer you know the Lord, you're like, I, mean, I just can't, I can't stomach this. You know, Sarah and I, when we, we got off the plane, we kind of felt this oppression of the, of the whole city. But Paul's reminding the church here in Crete that they used to think and act the same way. Paul's like, that was you. Some of you would have built the casino. And many of us were a lot of these things here. We can say, boy, I, I, I see that list. That was my life. And you know, not to say that some of those things don't pop up still because we still have a sin nature. But he's taking us back. Paul's taking uh, those in the church there and say, hey, remember, you used to live this way. You used to be full of these things. You used to be full of lust and deceive and all this envy, and you hated people, and, and you, you would hold a grudge for months over something really dumb. Remember being like that? Now, it's not a great idea to just dwell in our past life. Paul himself said in Philippians, forgetting those things in the past, I press forward. In other words, he was saying, don't live in the past. But it's also good to remember where God brought us from, right? It's good to tell your testimony every now and then. Tell, Paul 
Paul's is told three times in the book of Acts. It's good to tell this is where I came from. Hey, those, the teen that goes into Bonaire, many times in Bonaire, I've shared my testimony with those young kids because I was an angry middle school kid from a divorce, and I can, under, I can relate to that. I say, yeah, this, and this is where I got off the rails with that kind of mindset. This is where anger will take you, and you can talk to that. So it's good to sometimes use your past to tell what Christ has done but not live in it, but also don't forget what the Lord has done for us. You know, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, and you, uh, verses 3 and 4, you probably read this before, but Peter said, For we've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. No. Before we got saved, we got saved in Fort Lauderdale. You know, when we were in Miami, I was going to college. I bartended. We had South Beach. We had Coconut Grove. We had, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Las Olas. We had all those areas. And this was, this was our, all of our friends. That was, that was everybody, you know. That was, that was the, and it's not changed. And that's still going on in Richmond and L.A. and Memphis and New Orleans. And any, every city has a place where... It's built around alcohol, late nights, anything goes. And he says, they think it's strange you don't run with them. And eventually when you do get saved, your friends think, what happened to you? You lost your mind? Used to be fun. Right? What happened to you? And we, we actually came to our senses. God turned us and so we can have compassion on those that are still in darkness and still deceived by sin and still deceived by the course of this world. It says they're deceived is one of the words in verse 3. Serving various lives. You know, people that are, that are still tra trapped by sin are a slave to it. They can't stop certain sins. You know, they, 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 when they say, I can't stop this, in some cases they mean it. When someone becomes addicted to alcohol or addicted to pornography or addicted to drugs, they really have become a slave to it at some point. They're going to need the help of God for, for sure. When people come to Christ, many times there's a lot of chains that are on. But we can unwittingly, by this reminder of where they had come from, and Paul's saying, hey, you yourselves used to be like this. Don't forget, we can unwittingly, as believers, you see it all the time, we've experienced it, we've been this, and, and he's reminding us not to do this. We can unwittingly become jaded towards lost people. We can become very jaded towards lost people. Very comfortable and being saved. Kind of like, you know, when Jesus said the Good Samaritan, you know, the two religious guys were like, I don't have time for this. We're doing holy stuff. You probably made your own bed, lie in it, even though that wasn't the case. We can become very comfortable being saved and so put off by the world that the same world we used to love, and we used to love to party with everybody, and we, we loved all that stuff, and now we're so put off by it, we just ignore people. Now we're of no value to the kingdom of God. We're the righteous brother. You know, remember the prodigal's out there doing his thing, and the, the other son is, oh, I, I'm, I'm doing everything right here. All these sinners. Jonah didn't even want anything to do with the world, did he? He's like, they should all go to hell. How about that? You can get to that, you can get to that level of not remembering what God has done for you or for me. That's not what the Lord wants from us. Back to verse 1 where he says uh, to obey authorities and ready for every good work. Those good works are towards people. This is actually talking about our walk. This is talking about our witness. So the works here are specifically reaching out with the love of Christ. To, that's why it says to be peaceable, gentle, hum, humble. You're actually, you're actually interacting with people who are the opposite of this. But you can't be... And I can't, and we can't become jaded and, well, I'm not interested. I just want to listen, I want to listen to my worship music until Jesus gets back. Wake me up when the rapture comes. Well, what if someone treated you? Someone reached out to me. 
Someone probably reached out to you. They weren't jaded. Thank the Lord for those that are not in that. So he's saying, be careful. And as we see people mired in the emptiness of this world, it should spur our hearts to care and to appreciate the magnitude of what Christ has rescued us from. We weren't just, we weren't trying to find Jesus. Usually we're running the other direction. And it makes no difference, by the way, what state of mind people appear to be in, appear to be in. We got a chance to lead a lady to Christ not long ago that we thought she was happy as could be all the years we knew her. Turns out she wasn't. Turns out her husband had left her for another woman. She was, you know, all kinds of issues. So what we think we see and what's really going on is not always reality on top of everything else. No matter what state they're, they appear to be in, and maybe they really are as happy as can be, but if they're not saved, they're lost. There's only one or two options, right? C.S. Lewis said this. He said, a world of nice people, content in their own niceness, because you will find nice worldly people, Right? Some of them are nicer than people in the church. That's another problem that I've seen over the years. I'm like, how is this possible? I've said unsaved people that I think I would rather take care of something for me than some people in the church. But that's, let me back to the quote here. C.S. Lewis, a world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might be even more difficult to save. I would say definitely they're harder. I remember when we were living in Charlotte, there was a team that came in that was doing street evangelism. And uh, we were at Calvary Chapel Charlotte at the time. And this team had been doing street evangelism in every city. And now Charlotte is a banking town. I don't know if you know that. Bank, Bank America, First Union, uh, they, they're headquartered there. And so Charlotte's uh, SunTrust... No, it's Central Atlanta. I can't remember which one. There was another one, too. But anyway, it's a real banking town. All downtown are banks, lots of bankers. At that time, a lot of pinstripe suits and stuff. And this, this team that had been to other cities, other you know, similar-sized cities and bigger cities, Atlanta's bigger than Charlotte and, and Philadelphia. They've been to all these different cities. But they were like, they said that Charlotte was one of the hardest places where they kind of got rebuffed the most because... People were successful, and there was a lot of money in that wallet. And Jesus said it's harder to get a rich man into heaven, right, than a camel through the eye of the needle because they, they'll be nice until the gospel's presented. But regardless of how their mindset, whether they seem happy, whether they seem like uh, they are one second away from suicide, at the end of the day, they still need the same gospel. They still need the same transformation now, this blindness, whether, whether you're nice and blind or you're miserable and blind, God explained that blindness of the world to Jonah, didn't he? Remember, I already mentioned that Jonah did not want to see the people of Nineveh saved. This is what the, this is what the Lord told Jonah at the end of the book. He says in, in Jonah 4.11, And should I not pity Nineveh? We could insert Las Vegas, Miami, New York, Paris, Los Angeles, anything you want. But he said, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? God says, they are blinded. They're deceived by the God of this age. And that was us. And it's countless people who we pass by every day. We walk right past them in the grocery store, right past them, at the mall, right past them at the gas station, we pass tons of people constantly that don't know their right hand from their left hand, spiritually speaking, blinded. And the whole reason God said that I called, he said, he, Jesus came to Paul, he says, I've called you to bring people out of the power of darkness in the book of Acts. He come, says, I'm going to use you to bring people out of the power, the grip of darkness. But all these people that we pass by that are lost and they can't tell their right hand and left, that was us back when we were not saved. And they need a tra complete transformation, just like we did, and it has to happen outside of themselves. I cannot stress enough 
how deceived we once were, and how fast we were headed in the wrong direction, us before salvation. And the opening of verse 4 proclaims the glorious reversal of our lives due completely to Jesus. Look at verse 4. You've got to read it in its context. Let's read verse 3 one more time and into verse 4. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. But when? But. Circle that one. Capitalize it, whatever. But. It's hopeless, but God. It's impossible, but God. It's eternal death sentence for everyone, but God. A very similar message of God's divine intervention is found in Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians 2.4 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love which, with, with which he has loved us. It's another one of those t- turns. It's an immediate hairpin turn of on way to hell, but God jumped in the path in the person of Jesus and grabbed us from going into a burning house or into eternal flames. And the next verse in Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 2.5, uh, the very next verse, underscores just how desperate our condition was and the grace of God uh, so connected to it. In verse uh, 5 of Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in trespasses, uh, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you are saved. We were dead. Try talking to a dead person. That has to be supernatural. God has to, only God can speak. And, and the, one of the main reasons that we have, Jesus did the miracle with Lazarus, is he spoke to the dead. Remember, he said, Lazarus, come forth. That was done to show that only Jesus could speak. Now, he, he raised a couple others from the dead as well in his earthly ministry. But that one, he spoke to the dead. Very, very clear, and, and others were there to witness it. It was a matter of fact, it was the miracle that actually was the clincher of Caiaphas and the rulers saying he has to be crucified after that. But he called beyond the grave all the way to the other side and called Lazarus. But it was a picture of the fact that when you're dead as a doornail and completely blind, God can still call us. He gives light to every man, the scriptures say. Just enough light to wake us out of darkness, not by works, according to his mercy. He saved us. He, he, he poured. It's his grace. It's all about Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones said if a man could save himself, there would have been no need for the Son of God to come to the earth. Indeed, his coming is proof that people cannot save themselves. Jesus coming is proof that he had to come. I need to say, well, that's understandable or axiomatic. I, I, I know, but people don't see it that way. The whole reason Jesus came is because we couldn't save ourselves. And by the way, note that we are called, even now we're not saved by anything but the blood of Jesus, the washing of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, each, each of these things are enumerated. But we're not saved at all by our works. It says in verse 5, not by works. But note that, go back to chapter 2, look at verse 14. We, we covered this last Wednesday. We've been called to be his own special people, zealous for good works. I want you to hear all three of these. Zealous for good works. That's uh, Titus 2.14. Then in verse 1, chapter 3, we're called to be ready for every good work. That's number 2. Then in verse 8, we're told in the middle of verse 8 to be careful to maintain good works. Now, this is interesting. We're told to be zealous for good work, ready for good works, and to maintain works. 
And yet, it's clear in verse 5, none of the works save us. We're not saved by works. But, I mean, it is a huge, a huge megaphone thing that Paul's saying, all of the body of Christ should be doing the works of the Lord. Doing the works, doing the work. But not saved by those works. They're the outflow of salvation. In other words, if we really are saved, the works will follow, but we never are saved by the works. Um, when you uh, think about it, the, sa- the salvation of grace, what it does, it produces in us a gratitude and a desire for obedience to Christ. You can't produce a desire for obedience to Christ until you've first been saved. After salvation, you have a desire to obey, a desire to follow, and you have gratitude. You're, you're really grateful. Jesus said, Who, he whom loves much has been forgiven much. And then the works of God, it says here, uh, through the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, you have to have the Holy Spirit to want to do the works of God. So again, when I meet people that are, have no interest, I mean none, they tell me, I'm saved, I got saved when I was two, and then again when I was six, then I was 16, then 22, but they have zero, I mean zero desire for anything spiritual. I mean, it, you'd have to force them to church on Christmas and Easter, and they still think they're saved. I'm like, there's no Holy Spirit going on here. have to have the Holy Spirit. That's why you don't care. That's why you don't want to do the works of God. They're not, try- they're not even trying to work. They're not even trying to work their way into heaven. The, the Orthodox Jews are at the Wailing Wall. Uh, you've got people that are, uh, the Muslims in town right now, they're practicing Ramadan. They're trying to work their way to heaven. But I'm taking most of your card-carrying, just kind of, I do what I want. They're not trying to work their way into heaven. And yet, many of them grew up in a church and still think they're saved. There has to be a regeneration. Then the works will follow. And we're not saved by these works at all. Now, me and my wife, we didn't have kids so we could get chores done. You know what we should do? We should have three kids. So this can be done. I never have to do dishes. You never have to do toilets. You know, all these things. Let's have enough kids to cover every chore we can think. We never thought, let's have kids to have chores. Completed. But now that we do have kids, now that they are members of the family, they do have chores. We didn't have them to have chores, but now that they're part of the family, they have chores. God does the same thing. He didn't have spiritual kids to get his work done, but now that he brings you in the family, you are going to be a productive member of the family. Does that make sense? That's like once you're at the table, you will eat with me, you will work with me, but Jesus says, you also serve with me. That's why he, the night, he washed feet. He said, everyone's going, everyone at this table that just ate together is also going to serve together. That's the way it works. But he didn't have them to get it done. He doesn't need them. He could send Gabriel and knock it out in one second. Or Michael the archangel, right? He doesn't need us, but he's requiring this. So now these works will follow. One last thing, speaking of works. Uh, when verse 4, it says, when the kindness, think about this, uh, when the kindness and love of God appeared, this, to me, is just, just another reminder that as we see the world, we need to have the kindness and love of God towards them. Jesus walked into a world that hated him, still extending the kindness and love. So you have to walk into any room and say, well, I don't think they even like Christians in this room. That doesn't matter. Jesus said you have to love your enemies. But you can only do that with the Holy Spirit again. So it goes back to grace is needed. I was thinking, I was driving in, Lord, I need your grace to preach on grace. I need your grace to preach on grace. I need your grace tomorrow to pray about grace. It's all about grace, and the activation of the Holy Spirit inside keeps reminding us it's grace. Remember where you came from. Remember what I've done for you. Remember so great a salvation. That's why we take communion, to remember these things, right? It's reminders. Coming to a close, verse 8. This is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly. Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable 
to men. Now, look at uh, chapter 2, verse 15, which we didn't read. It was the last verse we left off last week. But in verse 15 of chapter 2, uh, he says this to Titus, Speak these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Then in verse 8, he's saying, this is a faithful saying, I want you to affirm them constantly. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15, and this verse 8 are specific pastoral encouragements. They are specifically to pastors to say, if God has entrusted you with a flock, you are required to preach the word and constantly affirm grace, 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 regeneration by the Holy Spirit, washing us from Jesus, not of works you're saved, but also that we're called to works, but not saved by works. So he's like, this is going to have to be because people will forget and they'll start kind of working for things. And then no, no, it's back to grace. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of grace. But on the other hand, some people need the first saving grace that we talked about last week. So all of it, he's a, when he says to constantly affirm these things, he's not just speaking of verses 1 through 8. He's going way back through the whole epistle to some respect as well. Most immediate right there, but it's also inclusive. It's both and of the other things that he's already said that we started out at the outset. Paul is a pastor of pastors, telling Titus, speak these things, exhort these things, and affirm them constantly. And again, that's why I say sometimes, pastors, we feel like a broken record, but the whole Bible is very repetitive. I was talking to pastors about uh, a group of us got together the week before Easter, and you know, some of them have preached like 25 years of Easter's, and they're like, um, I don't have any new material for Easter. But then, but then we kind of joke around and say, the good news is you don't have to have any new material. We're, we're to re-preach the word again and again and again. And uh, it's so important. And who is he speaking to here? He says, this is a faithful saying, speak these things and affirm them constantly to those who? Those that have believed. Believers have to hear what they already know because God, every time he's driving it, Deeper and deeper. You ever, you ever kind of drilled something in and you, you hit like a knot and you're like, there's no way this can go any deeper. And then you, you, you rest a little bit and you can get a little, in, a little bit more. This is what the Word of God does. It just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper into us. And by the way, when I preach the Word, I'm preaching to myself as much as I am. And I know anyone else that, that loves the Lord. You, you also, Lord, I need this as much as they. We all need it. We can easily forget. Last thing I want to close on is, um, by the way, I missed both those bullet points. Remember, reminded our pardon, and this is our last one, vigilance. So you just, just jot them in there. Pardon, reminded of our pardon, reminded of our vigilance, uh, and then I want to close with this. It's very important that we are reminded on a continual basis and Paul's contemporary, Peter, Peter had already been with the Lord well before Paul comes along, but uh, Peter says, for this reason, and I've highlighted, obviously, in, in, this, in these few verses, verses 12 through 15 of 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, I will not be negligent. Any parent that doesn't warn their kids is negligent. Any parent that doesn't teach their kids is negligent. Any parent doesn't remind them of important things. You know, most parents, uh, even if a kid has been told a hundred times, or, or maybe their whole life they, they've observed their parents put it on their seatbelt, when your kids start driving, you still say, hey, make sure you put on your seatbelt. Things like that. It's important. To remind you always of these things, though you know. Well, Peter, why tell us what we already know? Though you know and are established, they don't not only know these things, they're actually established in them. This is beyond just someone with a cursory knowledge. These are established believers. There's some maturity level here. In the present truth, they actually hold on to truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up. See, the, there you have two things in, in, in pastoral work. You have preaching and you have teaching. Preaching is exhortation. Teaching is knowledge and information, Right? Nobody 
is of any value with a bunch of knowledge and information. It has to be stirred up and actually become something. I know I should pray, I just don't. Right? Knowing you should pray is important. Actually praying is better, right? I know I should go to work, but I don't feel like it, right? You don't have to do that long before the problem will be off your hands, right? You won't have a job, at least not that job anyway. So again, very important that we're stirred up by the Lord by reminding, you know, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. Of course, Peter knew that his end was coming just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have. So Peter's saying, every pastor that comes after me will continue to affirm these same things, a reminder of these things after my decease. Remind, reminding, reminder. Very, very important. But here's the thing for us. It's one thing, I, I'm going to be called into account when I get to heaven. Did I keep constantly affirming these things? Did I teach them? If a lot of people showed up, if a few people showed up, if in between showed up, guys like, None of that matters to him. He's only going to say, did you do what you were supposed to do? And he's going to say the same thing to each of you. Did you do what you were supposed to do? Were you reminding yourself? Actually, it's not us reminding ourselves. Don't wait for other people to remind you, by the way. Stay close to God and the Word, and the Spirit will constantly remind. But even as the Spirit reminds, we need other people reminded. I have a wife in my life who reminds me of things. I listen to other pastors on purpose to be reminded. I'm like, man, I totally forgot that verse. I used to know it all the time, right? That kind of thing. So we have these things. We need other people. But if the Spirit's reminding us, then we are always branching out to be reminded by others. Does that make sense? In other words, if the Spirit's reminding us personally, we will on purpose, with intentionality, Stay connected to people who will also remind us, both in peer level, on the radio, in things we're reading. But it's not just information. We then are, it's coming back out in works, good works that are led and produced by grace and by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we just come before you. We need your grace. Thank you for these reminders. Thank you, Jesus, that it's but God that when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and when we were living in these, in these ways that were so worldly or self-centered, you called us by name. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells in us. Lord, we could never live a single day of any value if it wasn't for you in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And Lord, we're thankful, and we want to be more thankful. So Lord, we pray that you would help our roots grow deeper. And we'd remind ourselves, and your spirit would remind us, and Lord, you'd put people in our lives that will continue to remind us of these things. These are good and profitable, as your word says. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Have a great rest of the evening.